When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week, we welcome back to the show the creator of Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. His latest show is called Rutherford Falls. 400 years ago, my patriarchal ancestor, Lawrence Rutherford, founded our town. Anyone see the resemblance? I definitely see it. <laughs> it's in the jaw, the shoulders, the chest, and probably some other places. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Ed Helms in Rutherford Falls, the latest comedy series from my guest today, Mike Schur. I last interviewed Mike for this podcast in person at his Universal Studios office what feels like a million years ago. It was actually just over one year ago when The Good Place was about to air its series finale. Since a lot has changed in all of our lives since then, I thought it would be fun to have him on again to talk about his newest show, now streaming on Peacock, along with some really great stories from his years on Saturday Night Live, The Office, and Parks and Rec. Mike is just such a funny and thoughtful guy who really is responsible for some of the best comedy of the past two decades, so it is always a delight to spend some time with him, and I hope you enjoy this as well. Here's me with Mike Schur. Well, good to see you. I, you know, I was I was looking back at the last time you were on this podcast. I was, you know, it was in person. I was at your office on the <laughs> lot. It was like very, you know, I was out in the world. It was, uh, I think, it was just a couple months before the everything hit the fan. Um, so, so it's kind of bizarre to think that we were like, you know, in an enclosed space together, uh, you know, just over a year ago. It was like December, maybe I want to say, or something. Yeah, like I think that, it was. Or, it was either, yeah. I think the the episode came out in January, but I think maybe we met in December. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it was the the for the finale of the Good Place. The whole cast and I and some of the producers went to New York to be on Seth Meyers's show for the sort right, of live yeah. post finale, and that was like I think it was January thirty first or something like that, mm-hmm. and. It was, it is really like the before times for us. Like it it was like the show ended and we had this amazing trip and we all like had this wonderful time. And then it seemed like the next day everything shut down. And it it was, it was like a very disorienting. I mean, it was disorienting for everybody everywhere, obviously, but like to to have that kind of like communal group event right before everything kind of went haywire was odd. Um, I mean, I'm very grateful that we, accidentally snuck in under the wire but you uh, did. yeah I mean, that show yeah i mean the good place ending kind of yeah it's like a it's an interesting markation of <laughs> of time that, that yeah that's, that that's how you you know how you can think about it forever now is there's like you know before the good place and after the good place yeah, that's right yes as, <laughs> as it should be that's how everyone should mark time right exactly well i will say that you're you're responsible for my favorite uh piece of quarantine content, most of which has been terrible, you know, Zoom things. <laughs> um, but the the Parks and Rec reunion was 
I think the one that really worked the best. I'm and, glad uh, to hear and it. You, and you pulled off the best because when when it was announced, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, I don't know what this is going to be like. Is it going to work? Is it going to, you know, is it going to be just a bunch of Zoom boxes, which a lot of these reunions have been. Yeah. And it really felt like, a you know, a real show. And um, I think you you pulled it off in a really fantastic way. So, so thank that, you. That's that's nice to hear. I mean, that it was a real sort of fly by night seat of our pants operation, as you can imagine, like it was pretty early on. It was I think April. It was April when we started or March even. And I, I think maybe part of what you're reacting to is just like it was that made that show really fun and great was the cast is so wonderful that and there are so many of them that you, we we could leap around from person to person to person and every time a new person showed up you were like oh yeah that guy or that lady's yeah. on the show you know <laughs> like it was that was the the strength of that show really was its very deep bench of performers including people like Jason Manzukis and Ben Schwartz and uh, Mo Collins and all of the sort of tertiary characters that we could call upon so yeah it was a it was really fun to do if fun being a relative term in COVID times, but it was very fun because this show always had a sort of like community theater, like let's let everybody pitch in, let's put on a show kind of a feeling. And that then, you know, times a thousand for that, where like the, you know, all the actors are like, we're dropping off rigs at their houses camera rigs that they then have to operate themselves and do their own hair and makeup and and you know everybody had to like pull their own weight times a thousand in order to get it done so i'm glad you liked it it was it was that's definitely what i what i heard from uh from nick offerman who i had on this podcast and we talked about it a lot because i was sort of right after that and yeah he was he was talking about how they you know using the his actual wood shop and the fact that he was able to uh to have be in it with he was the only person on screen with someone else because it was with uh his wife his Megan own wife Mullally. yeah yeah that was yet another benefit of casting megan Mullally is like oh yeah now at this moment when you can only be with your spouse or boyfriend we have we actually have one of those and uh, weirdly like in that moment when we were all truly siloed you know when it was really every individual person in his or her own space just having two people in a scene felt crazy like it felt like it, it was it was like oh my god look they're in the same room like that that by itself was made it sort of novel because the other couples you had to kind of invent uh, reasons why they were uh, trapped in separate rooms yes which wasn't hard like it was you know andy locked himself in the shed or whatever but uh, yeah it was it was easy to do that but it was also it, like a weird sort of cathartic joy to just see two people in a room on a zoom box you know it was i know it really wild. was yeah and then there were all the people freaking out because they didn't who didn't know that they were married in real life were very concerned <laughs> oh were they really i didn't see that yeah <laughs> yeah there's a lot of twitter why are, what are they doing so that was funny but i want to talk about your new show uh rutherford falls um which i really enjoyed i got to see the first few episodes um and you know you were telling me again when you were on the podcast before you had just sort of started working on it a little bit so you were kind of telling me a little bit about what it was going to be like. Um, but what I think what's really incredible is you've made it during this past year and it looks fantastic. And you, you know, you would never know that it was made during this time when I'm sure you had all kinds of challenges. So yeah, what is this, what has this past year been like making a show for you? Yeah. You know, when I started at SNL a million years ago, I quickly realized that like the, if someone came to see the show live, they would afterwards it over. They after it was over, they would go like, "That was that was the best show I've ever. That was one of the best episodes of this show ever." Like they would, no matter what, they would just because the experience of seeing how hard it is to make and the adrenaline of people, you know, like 
I think many people know this, or at least more people know it now than knew it back then. But, you know, the host says like, hey, we got a great show. You know, Justin Bieber is here. Stick around. We'll be right back. And waves and the camera slowly pulls back and it cuts to commercial. When it cuts to commercial, hundreds of people swarm over this tiny stage. (laughs) And they grab the host and they yank the host into a room and they, you know, whip off their clothes and they throw a wig on and huge guys move giant pieces of a set onto center stage. And it's just this <laughs> insane, like they have two minutes to get everything done. And then it's like, they're literally still like, you know, a five, four, three, two, one. And then like the people come in and the cameras come up and they're like, hi, and welcome to fake talk show, blah, 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 blah. And when you're at home, you don't truly understand what it took to put this together. When you're there live, you're like, oh my God, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. So I think the TV shows of this era are going to be, of this year, are going to be a similar deal where it's like, you're going to watch hopefully Rutherford Falls and a bunch of other shows that were made in this time. And they're going to be very competently and traditionally executed. And you're going to go like, oh, I like that show. And yet, if you were there, (laughs) if you were on the set with us, it it would you would be like this is a miracle of engineering and from the writers and producers who who had to do it on zoom for the first time ever we all had to learn to do that to the actors who had to take their masks off in the middle of this pandemic and just grit it out and trust that the procedures were working to the producers and the line producers who had to suddenly absorb millions and millions of dollars of covid related costs testing and personnel and ppe and everything else to the crews and to the the props people to the imagine being a makeup artist in this and this for this year where like a lot of people on a tv set can be six feet away from each other um makeup artists sure can't they can't get a long skinny pole and do makeup you know so they had to be right up in the faces of person after person after person same with costume artists same with props people it's always a kind of small miracle that tv shows get made because it requires the skills and talents of 150 people all working in concert and, and all of them have to be good at their jobs in order to get the finished product to be good In this case, with Rutherford Falls and with all shows produced in this era, the production units are heroic. And I know that they're not heroic when you compare them to EMTs, frontline workers, nurses, doctors, people who invented vaccines, all that sort of stuff, of course. But just in terms of like people who work on something, the work they did was astounding. And and we all, anyone who was, who was going to be or has been entertained by something made during this period of time should tr- take a second to just reflect upon how hard it was to do. And again, I feel like I always need to say this, this is Hollywood. We're not, we're we're not inventing vaccines. We're not treat. We're not ventilating patients who have COVID. Like the, the, it's a relative thing. I'm talking about, obviously, but it really was sort of weirdly inspiring in a in a time when people were so scared and so freaked out to watch like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just go like, okay, these are this is our job, and we're going to do what we can do, and we're going to manage it. You know, Morgan Sackett and David Hyman, who are the guys who produced a lot of the shows I work on, they were making this up. We were one of the first shows to go. And they were making this stuff up on the fly. Like the protocols were set partially by the studio, partially by the state of California, partially by L.A. County. They're getting thousands of different bits of information about what's safe, what isn't safe, whatever. And they're just kind of winging it. And they, you know, they're everyone sort of trusts them. And a lot of us have worked together before in other shows. And so it was just like, all right, we'll follow your lead. Like, tell us what to do. And it was really it was really kind of lovely the way that it all came together. And it, it was very hard. And people got tested positive on every show. And that 
that caused problems and people got nervous and we all just kind of like kind of stuck together and we're like this is our little corner of the world and we will just do the best job we can and i'm i'm very like grateful to all of them for all of the work they did because man oh man it was not easy so I, I want to put all of the COVID stuff aside for a minute and talk about the show itself, um, Thank which, God. Is, which is great. <laughs> and the themes of the show, um, which are really about, so there's, you know, Ed Helms's character and his relationship with the Native American people who live in this town. And I know, you know, you brought on a lot of Native American writers and, and people and actors on the show, and that there was a lot of collaboration in that sense, too. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why that was important and and what it sort of brought to the the show that that maybe you wouldn't have been able to bring to it yourself? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ed and I started talking about uh, doing a show together in like 2015, like a long time ago. And we very slowly and sort of organically just talked about like what interested us in the world and what was sort of in floating in the ether. And we started developing a character for him. And the idea of the character was he was a, uh, a, a good guy, a well-intentioned guy who just had this kind of blind spot. And the blind spot was related to his his deep and abiding belief in a certain narrative about his family lineage that he had mm -hmm. been told and had just swallowed whole, just like a pelican, just like <laughs> just uh, the, the whole narrative just went right in there. And, you know, Ed is from the South. And um, so we were like, well, maybe there's maybe that's what this is, right? Is like a guy who is like, from a Confederate family, or from yeah. A, yeah, and and so we were we weren't we weren't sold on that, but we were, but because Ed is from Georgia, we were like, huh, that's interesting. And then Charlottesville happened, and it was like, oh, this is uh, the least funny thing in the world <laughs> is is this is that that debate about that period in our history and the people who defend it just became clear like there's no way to make a sympathetic portrayal of a of a of that person it doesn't matter what we what fake history we come up with for his family it's just like you're you're literally talking about slavery you can't you're defend it yeah you can't you're talking about slavery and sedition the two least funny things about american history so we moved it to the northeast and we realized like the other like founding narrative of the country is even older. It's older by 250 years. And that's white colonial American European history versus Native American history, right? And so suddenly that was really interesting to us because it felt unexplored and it also felt, um, it just felt more fruitful. So then we were like, well, we can't, that's not our story to tell, frankly. And um, we had w both worked with this woman, Sierra Teller Ornelas, who had she had written on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and uh, for a year she developed pilot with Ed, and so we were like, let's. So we brought in her, and we said like, hey, we're talking about. Uh, a character for Ed who's this kind of person who has this story and the idea we have is that he his his narrative comes into conflict with uh with a native american history and immediately she was like yes here's how you do this this and she just like fleshed the rest of the entire story out very quickly and so the three of us then developed it redeveloped it together and um it's the you know it's centered on a friendship between ed's character nathan and a woman named regan who is a member of the the native tribe whose reservation is sort of abuts the town that Nathan lives in. And they've been best friends since they were kids. And like, it's really a sort of two-hander between the two of them. And so we were like, well, you know, if this is a two-hander and it's half about this guy and half about this woman, then half of the writing staff should be 
native writers and half should be non-native writers. And ideally, half of the directors should be native directors and half should be non-native directors because it's just that's what we're representing. So that's what it should be. And we didn't quite get there with directors. We had a, we had a couple of directors who fell out, but for the good reason, which is that they were doing their own shows or movies, <laughs> yeah. which was like, OK, that's. That's the good way. Yeah, exactly. But the idea was that this isn't about any, we, we, you know, one of the many, many reasons that Sierra was the right person to do this with is that she has this really um, kind of thorough understanding of, of like modern, I would say modern pan native culture. And she were like, here, here's what, here's what, like, here are the pitfalls of inventing a tribe. Here are the, here are the benefits to inventing a tribe. Here are the, you know, like, it, she just had this, she has a really thorough kind of like eagle eye view of like where people have gone terribly wrong in representing indigenous people and native people in America in the past and had how to avoid that. And by the way, the answer is everywhere. They've <laughs> gone wrong everywhere. She has an amazing story that uh, she used to work at the National Museum of the American Indian in, in Washington. And she has this incredible story of teenage girls coming in uh, at a certain moment and being like, where are the, which are the natives who can turn into uh, werewolves? And, her, <laughs> and everyone being like, what, uh, what, sorry? And they're like, well, the, the wolf. And it turned out that Twilight had just come out. And that's part of, you see. Yeah. And that's part of, <laughs> apparently that's part of Twilight. They, I guess the woman who wrote Twilight, like casually, just threw a dart at a map, found that, or she found a city in the Pacific Northwest that was, had the least amount of sunlight. And near the, and that's where she set the book because they're vampires. And then near that place, there is a, I believe it's the Quillet Nation, um, which is a real nation. But then, but then just very casually without doing any research, like wrote that group of Native Americans into her story. And the next thing you know, a bunch of teenage girls are like, oh, I guess Native people can turn into werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Sierra just has it because she, she's, she's well versed in her own, she's in part Navajo. She's well versed in her own history, but she's, she, also worked at that museum. She's well-versed in all Native history. And so she was able to say, like, these are the ways that people do this wrong, and we are going to do it right. And that was just a very reassuring thing for me and Ed. Is there an example of something that maybe you and Ed had talked about or wanted to be part of the show that she or one of the other Native writers kind of came in and said, uh, I don't know about that? Yeah, there are plenty. I mean, I at one point for an episode that's later in the season, I was pitching something small just for in this moment of like how this scene would go. And it involved, it's sort of hard to explain, but basically it involved a Native tribe presenting itself in a certain way. And Tazba Chavez, who's one of the, was one of the Native writers on staff said, hey, there is a long and disgusting history of this particular kind of representation being foisted upon Native people. And so there's no way that this tribe, even in this way that we're talking about, would ever do it themselves because they would all be aware of that history. And it was, and it was not like, it was not the kind of thing that you would, that person like me or or anyone who isn't well-versed in that history would ever have looked at and gone like, ooh, I bet that's offensive. But it would have been really awful for any Native person to watch it happen. And that's, it, it was a very, it was constantly made clear why representation behind the camera matters, right? Because like it's, you can't, in 
and also, by the way, multivarious attitudes and and worldviews where it's not one person who has one experience. I mean, there are five, there are more than 500 native tribes in this country. So if you're like, oh, this is a show about native culture, we need a native writer. You're, you, it's like, that's not going to work. Yeah. It's like doing a show about Europe and you're like, well, we have a guy from Liechtenstein, so we're fine. We know everything about <laughs> Europe, right? Like, so yeah, it was, it, it happened all the time. And there, you know, we had there of the five native writers, including Sierra, we we covered like the Southwest and the and the and California and the Northeast. Like we got we were we had a pretty good like, you know, stretch uh, of the country covered. And what was really interesting also was to find like regional variances in language and like slightly different attitudes about very common things. One of the things that Sierra said early on was like, there's a casino in the show, right? And she was like, the important thing about the casino is like, some Native people love casinos. Some of them hate casinos. And some of them are totally indifferent and don't care. <laughs> it is no different from the way that any group of people thinks about casinos. And one of the ways in which representation of Native people has gone terribly wrong is every time there's any Native character in a show, they're always like either running a casino or they're like talking about casinos. And it's only like casinos are great we have a casino end of story and so like it was like a, a straight up uh mission of the show to say like some of the people are gonna like casinos some of them are gonna <laughs> hate them and some of them do not care like that and that's that's like the the benefit of having a non-monolithic view of any subject matter mm -hmm. uh, presented to you by a number of people with different viewpoints on whatever it is you're talking about, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of the big storylines at the beginning of the season um, and then, you know, that continues throughout is sort of the this idea of, of statues and whether they, you know, whether we should preserve history or take them down. And there's a statue at the center of the of the town that that's um, the Rutherford family. Um, and obviously that's become a big topic in the country um, and is kind of extended into things like the names of schools in San Francisco. And there's just sort of like that whole debate. And I'm curious after, you know, having worked on the show and talked about this stuff, how do you think about that and and sort of what is too far and what's, you know, what what's the right approach to uh, to the whole statue debate? Well, I mean, <laughs> look, the thing about statues specifically to me is you are literally like freezing a human being in time <laughs> in a heroic pose astride a mighty steed or like staring into the into the sunset or whatever and you're putting a plaque up and the plaque says this person did this thing and this date and for this reason and that's why he or she is great it's usually he right and so that isn't generally speaking a good idea and it doesn't matter who it is it's it's just think about the difference in this country from from the turn of the century to now in the way that we talk about very basic human rights and human dignities like 20 years ago uh, you could not if you were a non-heterosexual person you could not get married <laughs> to the person that you loved and not only could you not get married it was considered it was unthinkable it was like forget it that'll never happen maybe civil union will happen maybe this will whatever and then 20 years later it's not only it not only is the law of the land it's not no one debates it anymore the the right gave up that part of the culture war completely it's over like it'll never go back the other way so in 20 years we went from forget it it'll never happen to it not only is it happening but it's no one cares to discuss it any further it's over so if you when you're talking about a person from 200 years ago three four five hundred 
hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, whatever, you're just running the risk that that you're going to look stupid for venerating that person or freezing that person in time. And so the people who are freaked out right now by the world changing around them are fond of saying a couple things. The first thing they're fond of saying is, well, where do you draw the line, right? Like uh, if if you, if you can get rid of this, then who's next? And it's like, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it, man. Like, yeah, Let's like just people keep... who think that we're going to cancel Jesus next. Yeah, like it, it, like we can just have the conversation a lot. It's kind of exhausting. Like I don't, I don't want to be talking about this all the time. But like we ha- let's have the conversation about, uh, you know, you about like Robert E. Lee. That's a short conversation. Robert E. Lee was a seditionist and a traitor who led an army against the United States. Don't put a statue of that guy up anywhere. And by the way, especially don't do it in like 1927 when like a lot of these a lot of these statues went up in the 50s or something. So like, okay, who's next? Who you got? And it's like, well, what about this person? Ulysses S. Grant. It's like, okay, let's talk about it. He seems okay. Like, well, what Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? Yeah, he did. Okay, that's not great. And maybe there's a way that we can like preserve what's great about Thomas Jefferson. Like his writing was pretty good and stuff like that. And also acknowledge the fact that he was a slave owner and he fathered children with one of his slaves. Like, let's try to just hold all of these things in our brains at the same time. And when it comes to like statues or naming things, like I know that there was a big thing that the Calhoun College at Yale and there's now there's a bunch of colleges that are like, you know, renaming dormitories and everything. And I guess what I would say to that is like, who cares? Like, who cares what it's called? Like, yeah, like I honestly, this is what I believe. Uh, and, and no one would ever go with me on this, I don't think. But why don't you just say like, hey, every uh, 50 years, we just do a quick review of like everything, <laughs> everything that's named after everybody. And if Calhoun College at Yale got renamed Johnson College because of a person named Wendy Johnson who went to college there and like was a you know civil rights leader in the 60s what what's the bad Great, part yeah. like what's the bad part what is the downside and like sometimes people in this country they 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 get they froth at the mouth because the idea that history might be updated at any moment is like an existential threat. And I don't understand why. Who cares? You went to Calhoun. You you lived in Calhoun College and someone else who was in the same building lived in Johnson College. What is who is hurt by any of this? I just don't understand it. Like I have I can't imagine being that emotionally attached to the name of a building that I once had some association with. Who cares? I just I don't I really don't understand the 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 emotional connection to those things. And and I have to believe that it's not actually an emotional connection to the things. It's it's a it's a fear of the world changing around you that you don't understand. And you are you're locating it on the idea that like the name of that building can't change, which is just such a silly thing to care about, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of the uh, famous Parks and Rec episode about the mural that they have the whole debate over about whether if that's sort of a worth remembering that history or is it better to take it down? (laughs) This is called the Trial of Chief Wamapo. It was painted in 1936 and this is Chief Wamapo and he was convicted of crimes against the soldiers. I am always amazed at his quiet dignity right before he's killed by a cannonball. I'm surprised no one's complained about this. Oh, tons of people have. Yeah, we get letters every day. 
Yeah, we and we talked about that episode in the writer's room at Rutherford Falls a little bit because it was obviously playing on the same themes. There's another episode of Parks and Rec we did where where there's a little like silly thing in the town charter that says if the something something's like to celebrate the you know history of the country that every year on the second Tuesday of May they would grab they would take some tea and throw it into the lake but the a and t in the old timey script look like a d and so as a little tradition they would grab a, they would find a guy named Ted and throw him into the lake and so right. they get this guy Brian Stack the old Conan writer <laughs> played him in the show and they every they would go get and he hated it and eventually so they you see them throw ted into the lake and then he comes to leslie and says hey i'm not doing this anymore man you got to get another ted and she's like come on it's tradition it's what we it's it's what it's what we've always done and he says to her this is the way it's always been done is not a good reason to keep doing something (laughs) and it's such a it's like this is this is like the hill i'll die on i think in any debate is like that whenever someone says but this is the way it's always been my answer is always so what like that's not in and of itself a good reason to keep doing it, whatever it is, even if it's good. Like the idea that you wouldn't check in every once in a while to see if maybe there isn't a better way of doing something is bananas. And so I just I just don't I have zero patience for anyone who is making an argument that something can't change because it has always been done this way. That is not in and of itself an argument. It's you're just saying, I don't want to bother or I don't I'm too lazy to try to update it or something. It will never fly with me personally. I don't know about other people. (laughs) Coming up, Mike breaks down his grand theory about why comedies like The Office and Parks and Rec only get funnier the more you get to know the characters. And we realize that we both almost bailed on the same recent show before giving it a second chance and discovering that it's actually pretty great. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. Not only can you check out our first episode with Mike Schur from early last year, but you can also hear some great conversations with Mindy Kaling about The Office, Nick Offerman about Parks and Rec, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to tell us how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Mike Schur. Thinking about Parks and Rec and this show, um, I, I often think about this kind of theory that you're famous for espousing about 
the beginnings of these types of ensemble comedies being really challenging and sort of setting up the characters and that, you know, I think you once said if you threw out the first eight episodes of any show and started there, it would be, you know, that that might be the, the best case scenario, but it's not something you can actually do. Um, I'm curious how you, knowing that, how you try to combat it when you're creating these new shows, because, you know, it's something that, that is, that is real. And I think I find that for myself, you know, the more I watch an ensemble comedy, the funnier I think it is because you get to know the characters more and you, you understand them and it just, it just becomes funnier and you have to, and people have to give it a chance at the beginning. Um, so how do you, how do you think about that now? I think the, the, the first thing I think is that it's, it isn't quite the same as when I used to espouse that theory, because when I espoused that theory in the past, I was talking about network shows and the network schedule is like you write your pilot, you shoot your pilot, you wait like four months, your show gets picked up, you get a writer's room together, you talk and come up with some other episodes. And and then like you shoot the second episode while you're rewriting the third one and someone's writing the fourth one. And then you look at the first cut of the second one while you're writing the fifth one. And then you're like, oh, this isn't so good. And you go back and reshoot something from the second one and you're shooting the third one and you're breaking the sixth one. And it's just this crazy jumble, right? And it's like, a, there's that David Mamet quote where that I love where he says, someone said like, what's the difference between writing a movie and writing a TV show? And he said, writing a movie is like running a marathon as fast as you can and writing a TV show is like running as fast as you can until you die. <laughs> and <laughs> and so part of what made those in my experience those first 6 8 episodes of a network show rocky was it was like it was trial and error and you were like focusing on a million things at once and like it just took a while for things to mesh and you didn't have time to go back and fix anything because they were airing like you're like you're shooting them and then they're airing 3 weeks later or whatever now, like with Rutherford Falls and most shows, you're basically like sitting down with the writing staff and writing everything. And then you're getting the crew together and you're shooting everything. And then once you're done, you're sitting down and you're editing everything. And while you're editing things, you might go, hey, I just realized something like episode four would be better if we had this little scene and you're like grab a crew or you <laughs> sneak out away and you like throw up a couple walls and you shoot a little thing to patch something up. And it's just not the same. It's It's much more humane in terms of the actual way that you make these things. And I think what that leads to is a less rocky launch for most shows. Most shows come out of the gate, I think, far more polished and sort of competent than they used to because you are not, you're not in on that wild treadmill of doing 50 things at once. It still is going to be the case, no matter what, that shows will get funnier the more people watch them, the more the longer they go on. Like it, That's always going to be true because you cannot think something is really funny at a deep character level until you know what the hell these people are all about. And, you, and also, you know, the correct way to pace out story on, on any show is like you don't dump everything on the plate in the pilot you're parsing it out you're like you're holding things back and you're you're keeping things personality traits that are you know you're planting little hints but then you're not paying them off until episode seven like you you're not you can't just you can't have like a, a character show up and basically be on a lazy susan and just to like see him or her from every single angle while a narrator says this is john he has his problem with his mom and also his brother is better than he <laughs> is and also he has trouble with the relationships like you you have to like those things have to be parsed out slowly over the course of over many episodes so it's always going to be the case like you said and you discover things over the course of the episodes too i mean by whether it's the way the actor approaches something or totally know. yes 100 
hundred percent. Like you're, you are learning as writers as you're going and writing and like someone will pitch something for episode eight and you'll go, oh, that's great. We got to go back and plant that earlier. Like it's a, it's always going to be like an evolving process. But in the old days, you were just on this wild, t- it, w- it was a treadmill set to level 12 and you were sprinting as fast as you could. And it just meant that like some of those early episodes are going to be a little rocky and it's just going to take a second to figure it out. And that, that aspect of it is no longer true. Yeah. I was wondering if there was an example of an episode or even a scene in, in one of your other shows, you know, whether it's The Office or Parks and Rec or something where it did feel like it all of a sudden clicked in a new way that, you know, it felt like the, that the show sort of reached a new level of, of humming. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty. There's at least one in every show. Um, Greg Daniels, who is my mentor, used to he used to refer to the the episode where everything clicks for the first time. He would refer to that as the Ur episode. You would be like, this is the like Rosetta Stone for the show, right? And it was so it wasn't just like, oh, this is funny. It was like the writers and the cast and everyone had sort of cracked the nut a little bit and figured out some kind of dynamic or rhythm or vibe or tone or something. Like it was like the right story with the right combinations and the right scenarios. And so what he would do is if we we were even years later, if we were having trouble, he would go, well, let's go back to the Ur episode. On the office, that Ur episode was Diversity Day, um, which, which crazily... Is number two, right? It's number two in the whole series. I mean, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't, importantly, it wasn't broken, number two. We were, we were talking about all... We were talking about six, seven, eight, nine, ten different stories at once on that show. And Diversity Day, like, took the pole position. And then we really focused on that and and broke it and then shot it and aired it second. But it wasn't like that was the next idea we had. It was like there were, we had 50 ideas and that the reason it aired number two is because it was the Ur episode, not vice versa. So he, but he was just like, look, this is like Michael Scott wants to be funny and he made a mistake. He stepped in it and said something racist. And, uh, but, it, but what you think is happening is it's like a boring office corporate thing of you have to learn this stuff. Then there's, then the turn is great because it's like, no, I'm here because of you and then he turns and is like he's embarrassed so he then wants to lead his own seminar but he's terrible at it and like all just all of that stuff and then the little games that we came up with like you know right in ethnicity the cars in your head all the just everything about it and then in tucked away in the corners is the tiniest little Jim Pam story where Jim is miserable and at the end of the day Pam falls asleep on his shoulder and he has a talking head and says it was a pretty good day like that it was just like everything in every office episode was contained in that episode The most fundamental thing about sensitivity training is that you cannot make fun of a person for something or some action that they have done that they regret. You can only make fun of things that they have control over. Like Oscar is gay. That is his choice. We can make fun of that. I did not choose to fall into a koi pond. Maya, you still can't make fun of people for race or gender or sexual orientation or religion. Who Who let the lemon head? into the room. You are a waste of life and you should give up. Is what I want to say, but I won't, because that is why we are doing this right now. So Toby, welcome to sensitivity training for real. On Parks and Rec, there were a couple that we talked about this way, but one of them was the premiere of um, 
of the second season, uh, the gay penguin wedding, where it was like Leslie has an intention and her intention is just to do something good, right? And she wants to have a little cute penguin. She wants to promote the zoo. Then she gets embroiled in a scandal that is not, that is her making, but not intentionally. And she lets herself get carried away and she likes the attention from the gay community. And that, but then like she gets yelled at from someone and then she ends up going on TV and like defending herself as saying like, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to let this these kinds of debates stop me from trying to help my city and then it's over. And so like the, you can find one in any show, like any show you're a fan of. You can always, if you watch like the first season, there will always be a moment where you're like, ah, there it is. Like this is the first time like they figured everything out and really kind of nailed it. Leslie, hey girl, with eight R's. Thank you for supporting the cause of gay marriage. You rock, the boys at the bulge. They thought that was a political gesture? Okay, nobody eat that cake, Tom. Step into my office. That's also my office. Yeah, whatever. I know that you are not gay. No, I'm not. But you're effeminate. What? Well, you're wearing a peach shirt with a coiled snake on it. Yes, because it was featured in Details Magazine, and it's awesome. Effeminate. Anyway, so the point is, do you think that marrying penguins made some kind of statement? Yes, the statement was that you're very lonely and you need a pet. Huh. I think with 30 Rock, a show I did not work on, it's Tracy Does Conan, which was pretty early on. And that is like the first time, that's the first time Dr. Spachemin shows up, Dr. Spaceman, (laughs) Chris Barnell's character. And it was just like the something about like the zaniness and the, the, the wild, like rapid fire comedy of that episode. When I was watching it, I was like, oh, they, they got it. Like they're, they're they're good, you know, like they figured it out. Um, I don't know if they would say that's their er, episode, but I feel like every show has one of those. And no, it's, it's, it's fun it's to try to find it's, it's why you have to give comedies a chance, I would say, is the is the moral of the story is I feel like there are ones that I've either started and kind of been like, eh, I don't know, and then go back to and then eventually it's like you you get sucked in. So, yeah, I know I my wife, uh, who's also a writer, accuses me correctly of bailing on shows too early. Like I very frequently over the last year. Of all people. (laughs) Well, it's hard. It's harder to, I think, to not like, it's harder to lose yourself in something when you do it professionally. And by the way, she does it professionally too. She's just better at, she's better at watching TV than I am by far. She's a a more patient viewer. Um, But she was constantly like, you don't bail on this. Like, let's let it, like, let's, you gotta watch three, especially when there's only 10. You gotta watch three or four before or you can definitively know yeah, that the one that things. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that I um, that I bailed on and then made myself go back to this uh, past year was Ted Lasso. Same which with is me. Fantastic, really. Yeah. Yes, that was the one, and, and I, I felt bad. I was like, everyone says it's so good, but I don't know. <laughs> I I love Sudeikis. I worked with him at uh, at SNL very briefly. We overlapped just a tiny bit, but I've always loved him. And I watched like the first two, and I got hung up on the uh in uh, in the dumbest way i got hung up on the logic i was just like this guy took a job and like doesn't know (laughs) what the offsides rule is (laughs) he doesn't know how many people are on a team like and then it's obviously like very quickly you realize like that that's not what it's about that doesn't matter (laughs) you know but yeah i but we i bailed after like two and i was like let's watch something else and then my wife was like everyone says it's great let's go back and watch it and it is really great and like it made me feel good and uh, and i'm so glad i uh my wife like pointed that out that i that I bailed too early. And now I'm like, well, what else have I bailed on that in my life that I missed out on? How, how many TV shows, individual, full beginning to end TV shows did you watch in the last 
year of quarantine. Would oh you say God. I could more than I could remember right now or count <laughs> partly because I have to for work, but, but I know a lot, a lot. And I, and, and a lot of them very fast. I feel like I just, like, like just four get, day, five get it a day. through. Yeah. Just get through it. <laughs> I watched all of Bridgerton, which I, that one I did not watch. <laughs> I, I, and it was like, I mean, it was like, you have to make sure your kids are asleep because man, oh man. But, uh, I was like, you know what, Shonda Rhimes, like you, she, that woman who I've, I've met twice in my life has cracked some kind of code in a way that literally no one else, I think maybe in history has, where you can, the, it is the most joyous. She's just better with plot than anyone. Like she, like every episode is just so fun. And at the end of everyone, you want to watch the next you one. You want to know what and happens it's, next. It's yeah. just so, and you like, you can kind of guess what's going to happen because this show in particular is playing on these, you know, romantic comedy tropes that date back hundreds of years. But it is so satisfying to watch her shows. It's just endlessly satisfying because you know you're going to get a well-told story with twists and turns and surprises and it's going to be soapy and sexy and fun. And I, I just don't know how... I mean, this. what is this? This is 25 years she's been doing this uh, on across multiple shows. Like, I, I'm, I stand in awe of her. So before I let you go, I want to do um, sort of our, our quick uh, speed round um, where this show is called The Last Laugh. And this was, I wasn't doing this when you were, when you were on before, but now we're doing something called The First Laugh, which I want to know from you. Oh, this is a new, this is a new twist, a new, exciting twist. New, new segment. So the first laugh starts with what is, can you remember the first piece of comedy or comedian or something that really made you laugh as a, as a child? Okay. Am I supposed to answer these very succinctly or can I, can I? No, it doesn't have to be succinct. Doesn't, doesn't, up to you. The first like long form thing that really made me laugh was the movie Sleeper by Woody Allen, which is definitely not problematic for me. <laughs> I'm not reckoning with that anyway. But um, the very first thing I laughed at was, there was a Sesame Street segment about the letters A-N, the sound Ann, right? And this, it's like these two like kind of like shady Muppets are talking like in an alley. And one of them, they're like criminals. And one of them is saying, all right, listen, you got to take, there was a golden Ann, like A-N, it was gold. And he goes, you got to take the golden Ann, you put it in the tan van, you bring it to Stan, who will bring it to Fran. And then he was like, repeat that back to me. And the other one was like, I take the golden Ann, I put it in the tan van, I bring it to Stan, who brings it to Fran, right? So they're just doing this over and over again. So the first Muppet walks away, and then the second Muppet is trying to remember <laughs> what his instructions were. And he goes, okay, I take the golden Ann, I put it in the tan van, and I bring it to Horace. No, that's not right. And, and I remember being like, I don't know, four and seeing that and just laughing so hard. And my dad started, I remember my dad starting to laugh at how hard I was laughing. And I recently was like, I bet that's available somewhere. And I found it on YouTube. You can watch it oh, on man. YouTube. Yeah, I'm definitely going to find that. It's exactly this. as funny as I remembered it being. <laughs> Now, let's see, uh, I take, uh, I take the golden Ann and I put it in that tan truck. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, the tan van, that's it, tan van. I take the golden Ann, I put it in the tan van, and I take it to Horace, who... No, 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 wait a minute. 
All right. And then the next one is going back to sort of the beginning of your career. I mean, I guess we could do with SNL. What's the first sort of laugh that you got, whether it was in a pitch or then a sketch that you got on the air that did really well? What's sort of like the a professional uh, laugh that you that you got? So I was very bad at my job at SNL for a full year, basically. <laughs> um, it's not false modesty. I, I, I was a terrible sketch writer. Uh, fortunately, SNL is like a big, messy place that lets you fail for a while like you got to figure out eventually but they give you they know it's weird and lauren gives you a chance to fail so but in my first week titanic had come out this is how old i am right this titanic was out and was sweeping the nation and so everyone was pitching titanic sketches but uh so adam mckay uh, Rob Carlock and Dennis McNicholas, who were like three of the kind of seniory writer people, uh, were writing this sketch. And I was sort of like hiding in the back, watching them do it to try to learn by osmosis. And the the pitch, maybe it was just Robert and Dennis. But anyway, the pitch was basically, it was Samuel L. Jackson was the host. And so the idea was it was two black guys on the Titanic. And as they were like rushing people to the lifeboats, it just became clear that they were not interested they were not in gonna the, get on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there was, so Will Ferrell played like the captain of the Titanic or the, or the guy who was organizing everything. He was like all first class passengers get to the lifeboats and people were rushing. He was like all second and third class passengers get to the lifeboats and Tracy and Samuel L. Jackson were like, they got to be get to us eventually. Right. And then Will was like, um, uh, let's get all animals, all pets into the lifeboats. Let's get all the luggage into the lifeboats, you know, whatever. And I pitched one joke in this sketch that got in and the, the joke was, okay, all empty lifeboats should now be placed into other <laughs> yes, lifeboats. And I remember this. It was like the first joke I ever pitched in a sketch and it got in and it was like a, it worked. Like, and, and I remember so uh, clearly being on the, on the stage floor while that sketch was happening and that joke happening and the audience laughing and being like, I've got this nailed. <laughs> I know how to do that. I've got, I've got this job this down. No problem, yeah. no problem. And then I probably didn't get another joke or sketch on the air for like six months. After that. <laughs> but yeah, that was the first like professional kind of like laugh I got. And I, it was a th- real thrill. Do you remember the first sketch that you, that you sort of like spearheaded or wrote on your own that did well or, or that an idea that you had that that's that, or an idea that originated with you that then became a, an SNL sketch? God, it's all so blurry. I mean, I wrote a sketch with uh, this guy, Jerry Collins, who called Tarmac Talk, which was Tim Meadows hosting a talk show on the tarmac of an airport. It was insane. And then like he would be, so he'd be talking as like celebrity guests and then like a plane would go. And then the joke was that we had him rigged up and he would grab like a, the, fa- the the jets would like blow him sideways and he would have to hold on to this pole. It was very silly. I think it was Jerry's idea. Um, or he like pitched that, he pitched that like name Tarmac Talk and then I was like, oh, here's, we could do this and this and this. And then we wrote it together. So much of SNL is like writing it. It's collaboration. The, the, I wrote a thing, um, a, a commercial parody called Trilocaine. I think Trilocaine, or is that the, is that the powder in The Princess Bride? No, that's, no, that's Iocane. Iocane. <laughs> I think it was called Trilob something. It was basically like, it was Ben Affleck was the host and he, uh, and it was like, he just says like, I used to have terrible dandruff. Then I found Trilocaine. That's the whole thing. And then 
they start going through the side effects and it's like some people have mild headaches, some people have nausea and other and, and like 71% of people have an, an insane and terrifying vision uh, that that transports them through space and time. And it's like it's it was like one and it was like you, that you will begin the vision by like seeing yourself as a baby and you're smoking a long pipe and then a demon comes. It was and it was like the idea was like this pill, which cures your dander, gives you this one incredibly specific hallucinogenic trip. And it basically it was basically ripping off happy fun ball because almost every sketch at SNL somehow rips off happy fun ball. But that was the first thing that I just like occurred to me and that I wrote and that really kind of like executed. I executed it like the way that I imagined it and it got on the air. For years, I suffered from an itchy, flaky scalp. I tried every product on the market. Then I heard about Trilocaine. Trilocaine, prescription medication for serious scalp itch. Possible side effects include dry mouth or loss of appetite. Some users may suffer dizziness or nausea. And 90% of users experience an instantaneous and horrifying sleep paralysis containing oblique vision of mortality. If you are one of those 90%, after taking Trilocaine, you'll slip into unconsciousness and feel yourself stepping through a looking glass into a not world. There you'll meet your identical twin. The doppelganger points at you and laughs, a chattering skull-like laugh, then turns into a screeching falcon and flies off towards the blood-red sun. I'll tell you one last story, which is I was I because I was bad at the job, I my weekends were miserable. My Sundays and Mondays were miserable because all I did was sit in my apartment and uh, and with a notebook and just like try to force ideas for sketches onto paper, which is such a bad way to bad way to write, you know, <laughs> yeah. like Adam, Adam McKay would come in every like Monday night and flop down on his couch and go like, what about a thing where this happens? What about a thing where this happens? How about this? And he would like have 11 ideas. I like was like literally trying to like, like drag them out of my brain. And one night I, I went to sleep and I was panicking and I was just so miserable because I was just bad and I couldn't, didn't have any ideas. And as I was drifting off to sleep, I had an amazing idea for a sketch and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, that's such a good idea. And so I like sleepily got up and like wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. The next morning I was, I woke up and I was like, ah, that idea. I'm so happy. What was it? What was it? I wrote it down and I looked at what I had written was mailman puts poop in mailbox. <laughs> and I was like, and it was crushing because in that moment when I was falling asleep, I was like, this is, I'm going to save my job. I'm not going to get fired now because of this amazing idea. And then that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing is, uh, what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Uh, if it's something that you, that you watched or saw or, um, uh, someone you want to shout out is funny or, just anything that that's made you laugh recently? Man, that's a good question. So, so much less laughter over the last year than <laughs> yeah. ordinarily. That's, so that should really stand out when it happens, right? <laughs> I, guess it, I guess you're right. God, what is the last thing that made me laugh? I've been watching old episodes of Malcolm in the Middle with my daughter. Uh, my daughter and I have one show that we watch episodes of every night together. Uh, it started with Heart of Dixie, which my friend Lila created. We watched that. And then we watched um, we watched Everwood, and then we, which is like a, the same premise as Heart of Dixie, which is a, doc, a doctor who moves to a small town. And then we, but then we stopped after like three seasons of Everwood and we moved because we wanted a comedy. So we moved to Malcolm in the Middle. And Malcolm in the Middle, which I never watched when it was on because I think I was like in college. It was, I was just like at the wrong moment. It's really funny. And, um, and specifically, there was an episode last night that we watched where Jane Kaczmarek is, uh, you know, who's like just the most harried mom ever because her, she has four 
nightmare boy children. And Brian Cranston is her husband, and he's also kind of a doof. And she has this, she takes her three sons shopping and she has a hallucination that they're all, what if, what would my life be like if they were all girls? And it was really, really funny and expertly done as many of episodes of that show were. And then the, and the funny thing with every time the boys would be being miserable, she would like sort of like close her eyes. And when she opened them, it was like these three angelic, beautiful girls who all loved her and like helped, like were really thoughtful and kind. But then the funny part was as the episode went on, that fantasy started to decay. And soon by the end, like when she was imagining the girls, they were all monsters too. And I was like, that's a great, what a great message that all children are monsters no matter Accurate. what. Accurate. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I, I like, it's rare that I laugh out loud uh, at an old uh, comedy, but man, oh man, that was really funny. Well, thank you so much for, for taking so much time to talk with me. And I, I really enjoy the new show. Um, and I think people will really dig it. And they thank should you. give it a chance as we discussed. That's right. You have to watch it. <laughs> you have to watch all 10 episodes and then you probably have to go back and watch them again. Watch it again. Yeah. Maybe a third time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm glad no, you liked it. I hope, I hope uh, the same is true for other people as well. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much to Mike Sure for getting into it with me on today's show. Rutherford Falls is now streaming on Peacock, so definitely check it out if you haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.